The manhunt for a bomber at the Atlanta Olympics. Drop in the tease, and we come out of the tease with this in. We had a lot of worries about Centennial Park. It was the only venue, though an unofficial venue, that did not have uh, you know, magnetometers and complete security checks. It was uh, touted as the People's Park, so it was an open area that anybody could go to. A bomb exploded in Centennial Olympic Park this week, 24 years ago, during the Atlanta Games. It was an extraordinary chapter in the story of the 1996 Olympics. Two died in connection with the mayhem, which failed to derail the Olympics that concluded eight days later. Former U.S. Attorney Kent Alexander, along with Kevin Salwin, then Wall Street Journal bureau chief in Atlanta, have written a definitive accounting of the bombing published in 2019. It was called The Suspect. Both join us today on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. The title of the book refers to Richard Jewell, a park security guard who became the prime suspect just days after the bombing. He endured FBI interrogation and humiliation in the media for himself and his mother while the case against him fell apart. In his capacity as U.S. Attorney, it fell to Kent Alexander to write a letter to Jewell exonerating him three months after the Olympics had ended. Alexander says Jewell, who died in 2007, deserves to be remembered not as a suspect, but as a hero. He was absolutely a hero. People forget, but when the bomb went off on July 27, 1996, there were 50,000 people in the park. It was the largest bomb of its type in ATF or FBI history. Richard Jewell found the bomb in the shadows, under a bench, and alerted law enforcement helped clear people out of the way. And even though two people died and, and over 100 were injured, most with shrapnel in their bodies, uh, the damage just, the death toll would have been so high. So he was absolutely a hero because most security guards working a graveyard shift would not have, uh, would not have been as alert and uh, found the bomb as Richard did. Uh, what, what led to the letter being written? It's unusual for the Justice Department to do such a thing for a, for a suspect, isn't it? Uh, it is unusual, or was at the time. Uh, the, what really went into it was there was a huge investigation, hundreds of interviews and 302s, the FBI reports. Then we, uh, as we went through it all, it became apparent to many of us that he didn't do it, but there were still a lot of suspicious things that were unanswered, questions only he could answer. For instance, why did he ask someone at another tower, not the tower that exploded, uh, if that tower would stand a blast. He asked that question before the Olympics started. So it was important to get him in front of the FBI and the deal that uh, we struck with Jack Martin, one of his attorneys, the criminal defense attorney, was we would have him come in and talk to the FBI. And if he gave the answers that made sense, then uh, a letter would be in order. So the trade-off was, Richard Jewell, you come in and answer questions. And if you come in, I, I as U.S. attorney, promised to write a letter uh, after three weeks uh, once the FBI had a chance to look into what he said. And Kevin Solomon, the rush to cover Richard Jewell was a perfect storm for the media. It happened during the middle of a, the huge media event that the Olympics had become. Uh, thousands of reporters in Atlanta. Um, once Jewell was reported as a prime suspect, there was a, a real rush to find him by the media. Uh, the radio station in Atlanta I was working for did did its share of damage uh, trying to tr 
track Richard Jewell down and, and pester him. Was there, was there any skepticism among the media? Or, or did they like the idea of having one man to focus on? Well, certainly there was a a swarm of media. I mean, there were 15,000 journalists in town, most of whom had no sources in law enforcement and really were sports reporters. I mean, that's what the Olympics tends to draw. And once Kathy Scruggs at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution broke the story that Richard Jewell was the FBI's lead suspect, and she had extremely good sources on that story, by the way, most of the reporters at that point then just did what we now see as as social media type behavior, right? Which is, you know, uh, Twitter retweets and Facebook shares without checking the information, without verifying it in any way. They didn't have the sources to be able to do that. And so what they did was they often brought opinion and an additional pylon into their coverage. So he was called a failed fat sheriff's deputy. He was called the village Rambo. You know, he, he was, he was lampooned on the tonight show with Jay Leno. Um, you know, as, as what is it about the Olympics that brings out these fat, stupid guys? Um, you know, and so, and so that, that became the public image outside of Richard Jewell and his mother's apartment. There was this, uh, basically this campsite of journalists there 24 hours um, as they basically surrounded his apartment and made it, uh, made it into almost a virtual prison. And I remember for our radio station, we almost forgot about the Olympics and we worried about Richard Jewell for days and days on end. Uh, Ken Alexander, the bomb went off around 1 a.m. How soon after that were, were you notified? Uh, immediately, though, uh, not by the FBI, a buddy of mine you know, was watching CNN and called up. And so I went, took a shower and wrote, uh, drove straight to the FBI and then to the park. Yeah. What, what, what's, what's the role of the U.S. attorney when something like that happens? Well, the U.S. attorney, in essence, <clears throat> in essence, the chief law enforcement officer. So uh, even though the FBI really does the investigation, Ultimately, the U.S. attorney would be prosecuting the case. So we had spent so much time for the Olympics planning different scenarios, working together, talking with uh, Louis Frius, the director of the FBI, Vice President Gore and others, that we just put the motion plan in place that we would all meet, we would gather and uh, decide what to do. So uh, my role was to work with the FBI and support them in the investigation and the task force. And then once there was a... Uh, once there was somebody charged to uh, to make the file those charges and prosecute the case, but you never did have to make any any immediate charges against Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell was never charged or arrested. Yeah, and what kind of evidence did you find? What what what, what kind of things were federal investigators looking for in the aftermath, the hours after the bombing? The investigators look for you know, physical evidence and testimonial evidence. So the physical evidence just meant scouring the entire park and marking it off into quadrants and picking up every piece of shrapnel, trying to put together the bomb to find out what went in it and tie it to whoever made, you know, whoever did the bombing. The, uh, the testimony, the witnesses meant interviewing anyone and everyone who may have been a 
witnessed, which was pretty tough with 50,000 people in the park. So there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, interviews. What came out of it was a lot of circumstantial evidence that pointed to Richard Jewell possibly being the bomber. And that's what drove the case. Yeah. Uh, I recall a press conference the next morning after the explosion where uh, a reporter asked about police investigators apparently cordoning off a, uh, a bank of pay telephones uh, near the park. Um, what was that all about? Well, shortly before the bomb went off, uh, a few minutes before 1 a.m., the bomb went off at 1.20 a.m., there was a 911 call coming from a payphone, uh, bank of payphones, uh, just a few blocks away. So that had been traced, obviously, uh, though the call and the warning never reached the park before the bomb went off because of a lot of uh, glitches. Uh, the record was there. So that evening, uh, agents cordoned off the phone booth to try to take you know, fingerprints, find any evidence they could. In fact, one of the agents was a main character in a book, Don Johnson from the FBI, who was assigned to go down that evening and, uh, and, and make sure that the records and everything, all the evidence from the phone booth was preserved. Yeah. Were you able to find evidence at the, at the phone booth, for example, that, that helped build the case? Ultimately, there was some evidence that helped build the case. There's a, a footprint, a boot print that uh, fit the real bomber's uh, foot. But evidence on Richard Jewell, uh, no. But there were uh, and no real no fingerprints because the real bomber uh, wasn't about to leave fingerprints. But we found you know, beer, beer bottles, half cups full of beer, cigarette butts, you name it, all sorts of stuff. But no, no, no real evidence that was all that helpful. Yeah, Kevin, the Wall Street Journal, I don't recall, didn't publish on the on the weekend back in 1996, maybe not like it, it does today. Uh, did you have the luxury of time to digest developments before you had to report for the Wall Street Journal? We had the luxury of time, but we also had the pressure of the story. And um, we, we, like many media organizations, had heard Richard Jewell's name from our law enforcement sources. And um, we actually wanted to run a story in Atlanta. We actually wanted to run a story that, exp that said that Richard Jewell was, was a lead suspect for the FBI. And uh, we were pretty angry when, A, New York rejected our idea to run that story, and B, when the Atlanta Journal-Constitution broke that story and we were now behind on it. Uh, of course, you know, hindsight's a beautiful thing. And uh, that hindsight started to develop within several weeks that Richard Jewell may not have been the guy and that, and that the story, um, you know, may have had a very short shelf life. It was, it was accurate at the time that Jewell was the lead suspect for the FBI but it was not actually true that he was the bomber. And so uh, we dodged a bullet <laughs> from yeah. the Wall Street Journal's perspective. Yeah. Any speculation on how the story might have been handled if we had today's media back then, the extensive uh, content platforms that are available, the, the use of social media, uh, video, pictures, that sort of thing uh, recorded yeah. all over the place. Well, 1996, just to, just to quickly set the stage here, 1996 is, is a crucible year in media, right? Because you, CNN is already up and running. 
but 96 is the year that MSNBC starts up, Fox News Channel starts up, and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a bunch of other publications go online for the first time. And so it's the first time we see this true acceleration of media where speed starts to starts to become more important than accuracy in some ways. And that absolutely has continued today. And, and I think if that story broke today, what you'd see is you'd see an initial absolute uh, rocket ship type of, of stories that explode uh, across the media. And um, it would be repeated, 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 repeated. I think one of the interesting questions is how fast it would go away because um, that is the, the other piece of the social media puzzle these days is that our memories are about 15 minutes long. And uh, you know maybe the 88 days of, of hell as, as Bobby Jewell Richard mother, Richard's mother described it um, would not have been 88 days, it would have been substantially shorter. Yeah, Ken Alexander, what about the way uh, social networking uh, might have helped or hindered your investigation had it been so uh, prolific back in 1996? It probably uh, would have just would have confused the investigation. Uh, I think that if in 1996 it had been today, there would have been even more people coming out of the woodwork with things to say about Richard Jewell. And when you get you know, overrun with leads, which actually happened in 96 already, but if it's overrun even more, it would have been pretty difficult to sort out. I suppose one big difference though today compared to back then is now law enforcement's a little more receptive to embracing input from the public. So if you take the Boston Marathon bombing as an example, there were lots of photographs because people had, you know, had their, you know, iPhones around. There were lots. There was lots of video footage from security cameras, and what they were able to do was put out word and put out photos of possible suspects, and get immediate feedback and embrace the public as, uh, as investigators. So I think it, it would have been a mixed bag. I think it would have really caused a lot of confusion at first, but ultimately, who knows. Uh, what I'd like to think is if we were uh, in today's world that we may have played the 911 tape that the real bomber, Eric Rudolph, made and someone would have recognized his voice. A call would have been made and Eric Rudolph would have been arrested sooner before he struck three more times. Yeah. We're talking with Ken Alexander, who is formerly the U.S. attorney in Atlanta during the time of the Atlanta Olympics. Um, and... Uh, Kevin Salwan, who was the bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal at the time. They both are the authors of the book, The Suspect, a, a, a book about the, uh, the bombing and the investigation that uh, involved Richard Jewell, one-time suspect in that, in that attack. What kind of communication did the investigation have with the Atlanta Olympics, the IOC? Was there pressure on... Uh, authorities to come up with a, a, a suspect, uh, someone who did it to uh, calm fears about the safety of the games? Uh, there was a lot of communication with ACOG and the IOC, especially ACOG, the uh, committee that was organizing the games, Billy Payne and uh, A.D. Frazier, Bill Rathburn, who had security. 
they, as you may remember, Ed, in fact, I'm sure you do because you covered it, held the news conferences the morning of the bombing uh, more than once, the next day and the next day, bringing in the FBI to uh, calm the public and uh, inform the media so people knew the games could go on and would go on safely, though it was a hard guarantee to make since we didn't have have the bomber. So there's lots of uh, lots of contact as far as pressure goes. There wasn't really any need for pressure from anyone other than the natural pressure of uh, finding whoever did the bombing so uh, the bomber wouldn't strike again. Yeah, so while all the sites were on Jewel, what was Eric Rudolph up to uh, in your investigation? Uh, did you ever uncover what he was doing in Atlanta in the aftermath of the bombing? Was he still around? Was he still a, a threat to the Olympics? Yeah. Well, we, uh, we actually dug into that and uh, through Eric, Eric Rudolph's own account and later investigations and uh, uh, detail it in the book quite a bit. In a nutshell, Eric Rudolph hightailed it out of Atlanta Right after the right after the bombing, for reasons we outline and uh, you know talk about at length in the book, things hadn't gone quite as planned for him. He had planned to strike the Olympics uh, four or five more times. Uh, we we get into that. He went into hiding, and then eventually, when he realized he wasn't going to be nabbed for this, at least not right away, uh, he started plans to strike again and again and again. And he went after. Uh... Uh, abortion clinics, uh, a uh, a bar in Atlanta, frequented by the by the gay community. Uh, he's now in in jail for life uh, in a federal prison. Uh, any uh, prospects that he will ever be released? Uh, it's unlikely. I mean, obviously, he can he can apply for parole. He's at he's at um, uh, Supermax in Florence, Colorado, which is the highest security federal prison in the country. And, and, um, he's in there with, uh, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski and, uh, El Chapo and, and, uh, a, a, a real rogues gallery of, of, uh, American criminals. But, um, he, he's, he's, he can of course apply for parole, but it's, uh, it's very, very unlikely. I think, um, Kent, you might have a different a different perspective from yeah. a law enforcement. Perspective. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, what would the federal government say about? No chance, not a yeah. chance. He will die in he will die in prison. Yeah. When the park reopened a few days after the after the bombing, there was mag and bag in place security to prevent things like that getting into the place. A fence ring around the park, which it didn't have um, uh, when the game started. Did security planning for the Olympics that you were involved with, Ken Alexander, have any worries about the porous entry and exit that allows this uh, to, 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 to happen? We had a lot of worries about Centennial Park. It was the only venue, though an unofficial venue, that did not have uh, you know, magnetometers and complete security checks. It was uh, touted as the People's Park, so it was an open area that anybody could go to. So uh, there were lots of discussions in advance about it. Uh, uh, it was clear that was not the way planners wanted the uh, park to go forward as a security venue. So there, was, there were lots of, there were teams of law enforcement people um, throughout the park. There was security around the park, uh, but uh, we were very concerned because it was what was what we called a soft target. And unfortunately it turned out to be uh, just that. 
you know, the two of you worked for about five years on this book. Um, any any comments about why you why you chose to um, to tell this story at this time? Well, I'll, I'll give it a start. This is Kent. Uh, I sat down after the clearance letter that I wrote in October of 96 and started writing about the experience. And then I put that aside and I just felt like it was a story that needed to be told. And uh, it was a story that I, I figured I knew. So I'd wanted to write a book for a long time. I reached out to Kevin uh, back in 2014 and he can talk about his own reasons for joining in. But I, I specifically uh, wanted to make sure the book was told from three perspectives, law enforcement, uh, the media, and Richard Jewell. And that's as far as I had gotten. But I knew that I'd never written a book. And I also knew that I'd never writ worked inside a newsroom. I've done plenty of interviews. So I wanted to get somebody on board who had, who I thought was really good and was fortunate to have met Kevin. Yeah, Kevin, your motivation is, it is certainly a fascinating story to tell, first of all, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, it is a great story with really vivid characters. I mean, that was that was that's always what I look for when I'm telling any story. But in this case, I also wondered how this case went so horribly wrong. How a, how a man who uh, should have a statue in the center of the city of Atlanta for the number of lives that he saved and the number of people who are on this planet because of his work, instead is is in this muddy area in people's recollections of. Was he involved with the bombing? How long did he serve in prison? Was he charged? And, um, you know, or what was his role? And, um, you know, I, I looked at it as, as a, I wondered, I just wondered from a psychological, sociological perspective, how this all happened. And, um, you know, the fact that Kent was inside the FBI rooms listening to these conversations and, uh, the fact that I was that I was connected to the media gave us kind of a unique opportunity to um, unspool this story in a way that candidly was full of surprises for us as we went through our reporting on this. You know, I, I figured I knew half of it. Kent knew half of it. And we'd kind of, you know, glue them together and we'd write a fun, you know, we'd write a fun tale. I think each one of us probably knew less than 25 percent of what was going on and what we found in our research over the years, you know, ended up making for really fun reading, I think. And, uh, you know, Ken, Ken Alexander, you're in, involved at the center of the investigation, supposedly uh, uh, being kept abreast of all information, whether it's uh, uh, real or, or, or not being able to be verified. Um, did you, what kind of surprises did you encounter? I figure you might know everything from being on the inside. Well, I had thought so. Uh, but as Kevin said, uh, I, I was we, we proved, proved myself wrong. Uh, there were so many surprises in the book. Uh, Ed, we, I had no idea who the real who leaked the story. And nobody had. The FBI investigated, Congress investigated, but we disclosed that in the book. I didn't think I would ever see the profile the actual written profile, four pages out of the Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia, ever again. I'd seen it you know, 24 years ago, but it's mind-boggling what's in there, and we were uh, fortunate to uncover a copy of that. I never thought I'd see uh, the actual interview that the FBI did of Richard Jewell on the fourth floor of the, of the headquarters again, and we were lucky to get a copy of that. And then I, 
that I think the biggest surprise getting to what Kevin said was just how colorful these characters were who represent each of those three worlds I was talking about. You've got Don Johnson, this grizzled Vietnam vet who came to Atlanta with a with a history and baggage nobody knew about, and we and I didn't either. Uh, you have Kathy Scruggs, this uh, you know, excellent police reporter who's uh, just a character, a complete character. Uh, and uh, then you've got Richard Jewell, who, of course, the main character in the book. And then as a half character, we've got Eric Rudolph and talk about why he did what he did and how he committed so many other bombings and how he's eventually caught. Is there any confidential material still undisposed? Any any mysteries still to be solved about this case? Mm. Kevin, what do you think? You got it all? Uh, <laughs> well, look, there are, there are always uh, mysteries in terms of motivation of characters who are no longer with us and that kind of thing. And, and we, we, we never speculate in the book. Um, everything that we, that we ascribe is based on documents that we have or interviews that we did or that kind of thing. And so, um, you know, but I would say, I would say if you read the book, uh, if you're still left with questions, feel free to send us an email. We'll try to answer them for you. <laughs> yeah, I, I will add, I will add Ed, that, uh, to that. We, we reviewed 90, a hundred thousand pages of documents that we have scanned hundreds of hours of video interviewed, uh, you know, 180 or so people. And I think we've got a pretty thorough account. If there's one mystery in my mind, uh, it's, uh, knowing for sure what drove the leaker to leak the story because it, it created a tailspin that took a long time to pull out of, and it jeopardized the investigation. And I, I think delayed the uh, the uh, charging and arrest of the real bomber, which didn't happen for six and a half years. Uh, you write a book, and sometimes the movie gets made out of it, um, and that sort of <laughs> is what happened with 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 your book. Um, Clint Eastwood directed a a film released last year about the uh, about the bombing. You two were consultants on it. What was your feeling about how Hollywood treated this story? I think uh, this is Kevin. Uh, I think Clint did a really, really fine job on that film. Um, you know, it's it's entertaining. It's it draws a, a beautiful portrait of Richard and his relationship with his mother, Bobby Jewell, and his lawyer Watson Bryant. Um, it's it really is. It's a compelling story, well acted and well told. If you look at the Rotten Tomatoes audience reviews, ninety six percent. You know, so I think what happens is people are watching the movie and they're really enjoying it. And for us, uh, you know, the opportunity to work alongside, um, you know, Clint Eastwood and Kathy Bates and Sam Rockwell and John Hamm and Paul Walter Hauser as Richard, um, you know, those are pinch me moments. Yeah, the whole, the whole experience was uh, was was pinch me and including um the fact the movie had been underway, there's a really good Vanity Fair article it was based on originally, and then they found out about our book and so decided to base the movie on our book, too. And what came with that and seeing the inside of how Hollywood works and supporting their efforts and making what I, too, think is a great movie, though there was some controversy involved in it. Uh, I, I couldn't be happier with, you know, the, the entire experience. It was a once in a lifetime. 
And we'll, we'll give the final word here again to Richard Jewell, who, who tried to move on after the Olympics. He found work in law enforcement in Georgia, the notoriety fading, some, I guess, professional satis satisfaction growing from his employment after the games, um, called a hero for his actions in the park. Um, did he ever get his life back? Ken, what do you think? He did to an extent. You never fully get your life back after something like this, but he he married, he uh, got a job back in law enforcement eventually, he had some uh, like out-of-the-box moments we write about, including uh, singing karaoke in Hawaii, you know, lecturing in Japan, being on Saturday Night Live. But when you go through something like this, it really has a, takes a toll on you. And eventually he died young at 44. And I, I have no doubt, and nor does Kevin or any of the people who knew him well, that this, uh, the bombing ultimately did take a toll. But, uh, but he had some good times, funny moments, and, and found love. So uh, from that perspective, it's good. And Kevin, Richard Jewell, the hero. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think there's still some things that can be done for Richard and um, that Atlanta hopefully will acknowledge him the way he should be acknowledged. I, I think, you know, for me as a, as a journalist, writing some of the Richard Jewell parts after the bombing were some of the most uh, enjoyable things that, that I got to learn about and to really understand Richard, the human being, as he is trying to put his life back together and to thrive within, you know, with the kind of goals that we all have, right? To have meaningful work, to have meaningful love. Um, you know, those were, those were really, uh, I think there's a lot of surprises in there for, uh, for us as, as writers and for readers. Thank you very much to, to both of you for joining us today. Our guests on this edition of Around the Rings Radio have been Kevin Salwin and Ken Alexander, co-authors of The Suspect. It's a great read about the circumstances of the Centennial Olympic Park bombing that took place this week at the Atlanta Olympics some 24 years ago. Sometimes it does seem like it was yesterday. Kent Alexander, Kevin Salwin, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Ed. Great to be with you, Ed. And thank you for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. I'm Ed Hula. Your best source of news about the Olympics is aroundtherings.com.